Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> My dad said if I played this episode in 100 years from now, it would still have just as much impact. Today's guest barely even needs an intro because he's going to intro himself like a pro. Simon Later, welcome. You know, I thought it might be fun since you did such an amazing intro for me. Do you want to introduce yourself? Wow, okay. Never been asked that before. I actually never have the guest introduce himself, but you did such an amazing job introing me. I thought I'd give you a stab at it. Wow, okay. Hi, I'm Simon Lader. I've been a headhunter since 1997. I moved from Manchester, England, where I was born, to Las Vegas, Nevada in 2013, and I've been living here ever since, and I'm delighted to be Rena's guest on Better Call Daddy. Nailed it. That was amazing. What? You don't need to write a thing. So you have an amazing daddy story that you alluded to when we had our pre-interview. You told me that your dad had the dream of living in Israel. Yes. And when he found out that he had cancer, your mom up and moved there with him. That is something that I don't think everyone would do. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty cool story. Yeah. It's funny, actually, when, when you and I were talking there were, and you asked me about, you know, my kind of favorite dad story, the two that came to mind was that one. And another one, which if we have time, we can talk about as well. But just talk about that one. So my dad and I were incredibly close, not wanting to be kind of too kind of religious or spiritual, but he's been dead almost 10 years. It'll be 10 years in July. I still feel just as close to him today as the day he died, you know? And it's interesting that he and I shared many, many passions. Many. He was, I think, as, as, as hopefully most people's relationships with their dad, it changed and yet remained exactly the same at the same time. Okay. In that, as I got older, it went from the kind of traditional kind of father son relationship that you have as a child to being more kind of friends. But at the same time, it never replaced that kind of father son relationship it just kind of added to it okay so okay when I was in my late 30s he wasn't sending me to bed with no supper if I misbehaved but at the same time he was still someone that I turned to for advice he was still somebody that I looked up to enormously and was somebody who was and still is the moral center of my universe a little bit of history my dad was born eight days after the end of world war ii in europe so he was born on the 13th of may 1945 he was born in a salvation army hospital so every time i walk past in that can december to the people ringing the bells outside the supermarkets i'm always you know dropping a few dollars in there as just a way to pay my my respects towards them if it wasn't for them I don't know what would have happened when my uh, my grandma went into labour. He grew up in Manchester. He was a big Manchester City football supporter, soccer club supporter, which at the time, I mean, the City were, actually had quite a good period in the 60s and early 70s. They kind of declined in the 80s and 90s. And then it was only really in the last kind of 10, 12 years that they become a powerhouse when the royal family of uh, Abu Dhabi you know, bought them and turned them into the powerhouse they are now. And interestingly, he and his best friend, whose name is Sandra, he and Sandra used to go to the football every week. And uh, my dad and his best friend Sandra would go follow them. There was one game where they went from Manchester up to Newcastle. Now, it's about a two-hour drive, which living here in Vegas, two hours isn't, isn't, I mean, we can drive two hours to go to the store, right? So two hours isn't a big drive, right? But in the north of England, in the 60s, that was a long drive. If memory serves, it was 1968 when Manchester City were playing Newcastle away. I believe they won. And then on the way home, my dad's friend, Sandra, said to my dad, oh, can we just pop in on my aunt in Leeds, which was a city kind of between Manchester and Newcastle. On the way home, we'll pop into my 
It's my aunt's house. And my dad's like, no, it's, oh no, I can't, but I don't know, I'm not interested, no. So, but then she was like, please, please. So he said, I'll tell you what, if we win the league, then next year when we play Newcastle away, then we'll go see them, okay? And against all odds, City won the championship that season. So the following season, they're up in Newcastle and Sandra turns to my dad and says, remember last year when you said we'd go, I'm calling in that promise now, so we're going to go visit my aunt. They drive to there. So on the way from Newcastle back to Manchester, they go to Leeds. Sandra's aunt welcomes them in and offers them something to eat and drink. And she says, oh, by the way, in a couple of months time, it's my daughter's 21st birthday. Do you want to come? And, and you know, Sandra, do you want to come uh, you know, to your cousin's birthday party? And Sandra's like, yeah, fine. And then her aunt, just being kind of nice and polite, turns to my dad and says, do you want to come as well? And my dad's like, OK, just, again, just being polite. So a few weeks, I think it is later, Sandra drags my dad to this party of some, some random cousin. That random cousin went on to be my mum because that's where my mum and dad met, which in itself is an incredible story. Yeah, they could have met a year earlier too. A, they could have met a year earlier, right? <laughs> and So I would be a year older right now. And also, despite the fact that I'm a Manchester United supporter, I owe my very existence to Manchester City winning the league in 1968, which is an odd thing. So my dad and my mum married and settled in Manchester. And my sister was born two years later. My, I was born two years after that. I look back at a very happy childhood. You know, there was no trauma. There was no, there's really, it's probably the dullest origin story anyone could ever have. Because I had a very happy, son was playing in the garden, going to the beach, you know. And yeah, we, we weren't wealthy. We weren't poor. We were just a regular, you know, middle class English family. Then when I was 17, I spent two years in Israel. Then I came back to the UK. A few years after that, I married. We had two kids. 2011, no, 2010, when the big kind of, when the economy completely collapsed, my dad, by this stage, had had a very successful career in capital equipment. Okay, you know, big office supplies, you know, photocopiers and uh, calculators and typewriters and all that kind of stuff, right? He was retired. I mean, kind of forcibly retired in 2002, I think it was, 2003, I think, because the company he was working for downsized. And then he got a job working for working for the government. And so my dad ended up heading a department for, for the government, which I thought was the coolest thing ever, right? My dad working on Her Majesty. I mean, he'd get letters in the post on Her Majesty's service, right? And it was like, I thought my dad was like James Bond. I mean, it was the coolest thing. I mean, I'm in my 20s. I'm still geeking out over this, right? And my dad's like really cool about the whole thing. So he did that for eight, nine years. And then in the, the big financial, when the big financial bubble burst, there was a massive pressure on the UK public sector to significantly downsize and to reduce their wage bill. And my dad, being a, a civil servant, his department basically disappeared. He then came and worked alongside me in my headhunting firm, right? Which was the most extraordinary 18 months. It was fantastic. It was unbelievable. The guidance, the advice, just having my dad, like my mentor, who knew nothing about headhunting, but just knew about relationship building and sales and productivity just seeing like this forgive me old pro right just doing his thing I mean I was just it was like every day I was getting just the most extraordinary sales training and business training and customer service training just by my dad sitting you know a desk away from me I was drinking this in it was amazing that's so amazing and when you started recruiting too you had no idea what a recruiter was so did that bring you back to kind of when you started were you able to relate with him about that well it's funny actually because again a little bit of full circle because I started in recruitment having had three years in sales right mainly in inside sales and then by one of those lucky freaky coincidences I found a particular product when I was working for a company. The company didn't want to sell the product. I had a big fallout with them over something else. And I thought, okay, fine. And as a precocious 22-year-old, I was like, okay, sod the lot of you. Walked out, took this product with me, as in the relationship with the, the, the organization made the product. Called them and said, I'm going to set up my own distribution company. I'll sell it for you. And they were like, okay. And then from that, I built up a very successful car alarm installation and distribution company, right? At the age of like 22. Yeah, I want to hear more about that. You got to go a little bit deeper. That's crazy. Like, how did you sell that? 
it, it was the most ridiculous. I mean, this is the only very stupid people of that brave. You know what they say about Christopher Columbus? It was just ridiculous. You know, I mean, I had no idea. What I, I, I knew was it was a product. I thought, wow, that's really cool. And so I advertised in newspapers. I used to go around parking lots. I used to print out on my computer, like my, on using CorelDRAW 4, right? This really awful looking flyer. There was basically, I, I think it says something like, I could have stolen your car. And, and then underneath it, however, I didn't. And if you want me to protect it, call this number. I just, where I used to, I used to print like hundreds of them. This is the very, very early days, hundreds of them and go around hospital parking lots, shopping center parking lots, any big parking lot I could find that was open. that wasn't like, you know, an indoor one where it was like protected, any big open parking lot and walk around, just put these flyers on the, under the windshield wipers. And I would have them printed on yellow paper so they look like parking tickets. So people would go and they go, oh, oh, oh. And then they call the number and it'll be something like, you know, 10% discount if you if you use this. Hey, who doesn't want a discount, right? And I call them, like, oh, yeah, great. Okay. And then I realized that I had these products. And so I just started with that one and then I, I got others as well. And then before I knew it, I had a fleet of installers that were working commission only for me okay so there's no risk i have this product that i would buy i would sell them before i bought them so i negotiated they would give me like four or five in stock for free so i would sell the ones i had in stock and then order another one so again i was never tied up in cash flow and after about two years of doing it another company went and wrote me a check and bought me out and by that stage i was like yeah i don't want to do this anymore i'm bored or i want to do something else and it was really off the back of that, having sold it, that I was like, okay, now what do I do? I got the local newspaper, was thumbing through, and I saw that there was a, a company advertising sales jobs and uh, marketing jobs. And I thought, I could do sales and I could do marketing. And I, I came to the, the thought that even though I'd sold my business and money in the bank, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I thought, I better go and get a job somewhere just so I can figure out what I want to do. Because I don't want to just go and start another business because I don't know what else... And frankly, I didn't even want to start the other way. I just did it as a way to thumb my nose at my previous employer, right? So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I'm going through this newspaper and it's like, oh, they, that, that's a big pan on this company seems to be advertising lots of things. So I called them up and I said, hey, I'm seeing your advertising jobs that I'd like to do. Can I come and have an interview with you? And they went, yeah, okay. And it was about 20 minutes into the interview that I realized that they were a recruitment company. I, no, I didn't even know what a recruitment company was. And it was, I think it literally was like 20 minutes. And I went, oh, so these jobs aren't for you. They're for other people. Oh, now they must have thought I was an absolute tool that I hadn't even done my research beforehand. But luckily I was engaging enough with them. And I was, I don't know, I was incredibly lucky that somebody who I still rank now as being pro, definitely in the top five of influences on my life, a guy called Mark Bridges, who was my first boss in recruitment. He and I just got on really well. And against all odds, he offered me a job. So that's why I got into recruitment. And I worked under him for four years. Then I went to work for another guy called Chris in a, another organization called Torres and Partners for another four years. And it was at that point that I started Salise, which is my, my headhunting business. What do you love about recruiting? So there's actually a few things I love about it. Number one, I get paid to talk to fascinating people every day. Now, what could be better than that? Number two, it's one of the few jobs where you actually get to improve people's lives, whether it's improving the life of somebody who is working 18 hours a day because he's managing a sales team. He needs five people, but he's only got four. So as well as doing his own job, he's also doing the job of the sales guy. And in the meantime, he's missing his kids' birthdays. He's missing dinner. He's missing weekends. His wife's on the verge of divorcing him, right? All because he's basically doing two jobs. He's, he's trying to do his own job as sales director. He's trying to do the job of the sales guy that hasn't been recruited yet. And he's trying to recruit a sales guy and hasn't got the time to do any of it. So I get to make a massive difference to his life by helping him out with that. And in the, on, on the flip side, I get to help somebody who's in a job they're not really enjoying and needs coaching and developing to go and take their career to the next level. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is that the specific area of recruiting that I work in is in cybersecurity. Now, recruitment has, I would say, anyone that works in recruitment in any area really gets to, to do and gets to benefit from the first two things that I mentioned. They get to talk to really interesting people all the time, and they get to improve people's lives. Again, hopefully, right? 
Now I get all of that and I get one other thing as well. There are very, very, very few areas in recruitment where there's a very clear delineation between the good guys and the bad guys. So if let's say you were recruiting for a for the retail sector, okay, well, it's, it's very nice. You're helping people get the goods and services. You know, through your efforts, people are going to get better goods and more access or better access to the goods and services that they want. That's great. It's not really good versus evil. If you're working in the banking sector, okay, so in through what you're doing, the economy is going to work better. It's going to work faster. All well and good, but again, not really good versus evil. Cybersecurity genuinely is good versus evil because the same people that write malware, that are trying to hack into your computer, that are trying to get your passwords by social engineering, asking you stupid questions on, on Facebook of, you know, what's your favorite movie or, or all that sort of stuff. These are the same people that are involved in people trafficking, drugs, child prostitution, terrorism. These are all the same guys. And I help the people that are on the front line stopping them. So when I place somebody for any of my clients, I know that I might not be Tony Stark. That's my clients. They're Tony Stark. They're Thor. They're Black Widow, right? I'm the guy that's making sure that Tony Stark's breakfast is being served on time. I might, might, not, might not be Tony Stark. Maybe I can be somebody that's helping Pepper Potts. But at the same time, I'm on the team. I may not be the one on the front line, but I'm on the team and I'm participating in the fight for good versus evil. And that's what gets me up in the morning. Oh, my dad will like that. We just interviewed a guy who was like a real life vigilante. He was a professional wrestler turned pastor and he was all about good triumphing evil. My dad loves that. So he will definitely connect to, you know, that getting you up in the morning. That's really cool. I am interested in, have you come into seeing child trafficking or have you seen some of the bad stuff thankfully yeah. not first not first hands i mean i've seen the effects of child abuse it's not quite connected and maybe this had had a, a big imprint on my life when i was seven my parents started fostering they we became a foster family from the from the age of about eight and we had we started off by having kids from families who it wasn't abuse but it was borderline neglect so it was like for example there was one girl called sarah who who stayed with us i was seven or eight so she must have been maybe four or five she stayed with us only because i think her mom couldn't cope she had like some mental challenges you know something like that so she couldn't quite she couldn't cope so for a few hours a day or after school or something like that, Sarah would come to our house and every so often would stay overnight or whatever. And I think her mum went to, uh, she was in hospital for a while, so Sarah stayed with us, that kind of thing. And then there was another, we had another couple of boys staying with us a little bit later and a few other kids, right? And it was primarily for children who were like borderline at risk of neglect, okay? Never of abuse, borderline of neglect, if that makes sense. So like no ill will, just the parents couldn't cope, right? When I was 12, I think it was, we had a boy of eight called Lee who came to stay with us. Okay, now Lee had been abused, had been badly abused by his parents. Social services took them off him and we were like an emergency foster family. That's what we were there for, like a few hours here and there. But unfortunately, because of the overwhelm of the system, Lee, instead of staying with us for a few days or a couple of weeks, ended up staying with us for over a year. Yeah, I mean, we, we saw firsthand, like he, he came and he, he, first of all, he was, he was an eight-year-old boy and he was, literally was skeletal bruised i'm not sure whether this is appropriate for this audience so if not you'll yes no i i've never known a family to do this i mean yeah. your parents are remarkable people oh they're incredible incredible and uh and there was like i remember there was one time where do you remember i was saying earlier about this kind of idyllic childhood where we would like go to the beach on sundays and all that so there was one day i remember i came home from school and uh, we just didn't have anything to do and then from from manchester to to the coast is like an hour an hour and a quarter's drive it's not far right i mean in england you're never that far from the coast because it's a small island but nonetheless so i remember my dad just saying yeah okay we're all going out we're going to go to the beach and lee ran upstairs screaming and like hid under the bed or, or something right when my parents coaxed him out, either he told them, maybe the social worker told them, that whenever his parents went out for the day, they would lock him in a closet. So he thought, because we were all going out, not, we're all going out, we're going out, we're locking you in the closet. That's what he thought. I remember there was one time, he was a, obviously a very nervous boy, 
there was one time where he soiled the bed. He woke up and he'd soiled the bed, right? And he was so terrified to tell my mum. I think he he put it in the trash or something and that or like stuffed it under the bed or something. And it was only my parents only found out a day or two later because there was the smell. And when my mum, I was like, my mum, my dad, like confronted, not confronted him in like, uh, you know, when, when they presented this to him as, if this happens again, just come tell us and it's fine. He was, I mean, he, I remember he was terrified and was like, he was like bracing himself for a, and it was because, again, I remember talking to the social worker and I remember like saying to see, I don't understand why is he, why is he like this? And he said, well, you need to understand because if he wet the bed at home, his parents would rub his face in it because that's what they did to their dogs. Oh my God. And an eight-year-old is such a baby. Like that yeah. is so sad. I mean, how did this affect you? I mean, you were in really impressionable 12. years. Yeah. It's funny. I don't talk about it very often, not because I'm hiding it. It's just not something that really comes up. I remember when when my wife and I got married and we briefly talked about whether or not we would be foster, you know, a foster parent. Liz, to be fair, is quite open to it or how it was. I think for me, it's an incredible, incredible, incredible thing for people to do, right? I mean, it really is. The thing that sometimes people underestimate is the toll it takes on the other kids. It's really hard. It's incredibly rewarding. And I'm not a poster child by any stretch. I mean, the real heroes of this story are my mom and dad. I mean, they were incredible. I just kind of rode with it as a, as a 12-year-old, but it, but it is hard. I'm um, glad you brought that up because, you know, some kids don't even want their siblings to have playdates. You know, and you're bringing another kid into your house. Like, yeah. you know, I've got sisters with kids in Israel and they live much different lives. And even integrating my sister's kids and my kids and like trying to get them to be friends, like that can be challenging, yeah. right? Yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> and and I think about Lee in particular as we get to the summertime, because as unfortunately the vast majority of these stories end. Lee took his own life when he was 22. So it's, an, it's incredibly sad. And I remember talking to my therapist about this. I'm a big believer in mental health and mental health tune-ups. I, I'm very open. I see a therapist every month, right? And I remember a few years ago t- talking to my therapist about it. And, she, and I said, and when we found out that he, he, he'd taken his own life, that it really destroyed me. I was very, very, very upset about it for a while. And every year when it comes around to that time of year, I kind of, it kind of comes back. And she said, to, and, and I said to her that maybe I could have been a better brother to him. You know, maybe I could have done more. Maybe I could have been. And she said, first of all, you are 12 years old, 12 year old. The job description of a 12 year old is to be a brat. And you were, you were, you were a perfectly normal brat of a 12 year old. You know, I'm sure you could have done better, but you could have done a hell of a lot worse as well. But the second thing is, she said that the, unfortunately, the overwhelming majority of cases that's how the story ends. It's an inevitability almost. It's so devastating. I am so yeah. sorry. Oh my God. How did you keep up with him through the years? You followed his story? To an extent. I mean, so he stayed with us for a year. Then he went to another family that we knew very well. And the Simon equivalent in that family and I are very close friends. I mean, he lives in Manchester, England, and, but we still stay in touch. And then he went on to another family. But unfortunately, he, he, he was already by then, he was a an extremely difficult teenager and actually tried to kill one of the other children in that family. So it was very, very hard. I mean, I, I when I think of Lee, I think of him as basically an eight or nine-year-old boy. I mean, I remember his meeting his dad one time. His dad, I mean, okay, I was a little 12-year-old, but his dad was huge. His dad was well, well over six feet, six, four, six, five. Huge guy. I would imagine that Lee probably grew up to have a similar kind of stature, right? as in yeah, physically very imposing. So that family, unfortunately, needed, needed to move him on. And then I think he was somewhere else and he basically got lost in the system. And by then it was too late. It's so sad. Did you ever talk to your parents about how you felt? Yeah, 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 yeah. I've been very, very lucky that my mum and dad were always, and my mum still is, very, very open and communicative. My mum was a guidance counsellor, marriage guidance counsellor. She was on Citizens Advice. The, the same standards that we have in my family now are the, fa- are the standards that, that, that I was brought up with, where there are no secrets, nothing's off the table. If you want to talk about something, we talk about it. I, I think having that level of approachability between parents and kids is of paramount importance. So my kids, and hey, all kids have issues. You know, sometimes my kids think they're being bullied. They're not. They're just like some an other over-exuberant classmate and helping them dis- determine, yeah, distinguish between bullying and horseplay and that kind of thing but they still 
feel that they can approach me and my wife about it. And these are values that I took from my own upbringing. Um, having my parents being that open to communicate about all sorts of things, including me not understanding why Lee was terrified that we were going to the beach. Wow, that is a remarkable story. Thank you so much for sharing that. As I look, that at wasn't the- even one of the two I was going to talk about either. Yeah, what was the second story you wanted to tell me about your dad? Okay, so moving forward then, my dad came to work for the business. And then in the spring of 2011, he got sick. And it took them a while to figure it out, but then they figured out that it was cancer. And at that point, my parents decided that enough was enough. They were going to go and live in Israel, which was something that my mom and dad had always wanted to do. They were child, they were both kind of teenagers in the 60s. And I think that people of our generation can never really appreciate what it was like to live through the Six-Day War. The Six-Day War, my parents talk about, I mean, my my mum even now, that that was was probably the most, the moment in her life that made the biggest impression was the Six-Day War. Because before that, being Jewish was to be a Holocaust survivor, to be a nebuch, to be somebody, to be pitted, a victim. And even from 48 through to you know the mid 60s it was still considered that they were like the ah never mind and it was almost something to be embarrassed about the six-day war changed everything because suddenly people were proud to be jewish where before nobody ever wore a yarmulke or a kippah in the street from then it became normal for jewish for religious jewish men to wear a yarmulke in the street and Jewish pride was a new phenomenon. And it was a phenomenon that, that the baby boom generation, you know, the kids that have been born in the baby boom after the end of the Second World War, when suddenly there was this like, urge to repopulate the world, suddenly you got all these kids, the, they're now, the baby boomers are now teenagers or their late teens, early 20s, and they're listening to the Beatles and they're listening to the Stones and they're wearing all the really cool fashion from Carnaby Street and the King's Road. And the Jewish kids have now got heroes to look up to because Israel won the Six-Day War. So from then, suddenly my parents that weren't at that time religious so, and, and didn't know each other yet, suddenly then, they didn't, they didn't meet for another couple of years, suddenly then independently became Zionists, okay? As in, yeah, we're going to live in Israel. In, I'm going to say 1983, I think it was, when I was about nine or 10, my parents decided to go and live in Israel. We're going to live in Israel. So my dad and my uncle were going to go and live in Israel. We're all going to go and live in Israel. My dad, my mum and dad, and me and my sister, and my dad's sister, her husband, and their kids. All we're all going to go and live in Israel. And my dad, who although he'd, his career had been office equipment by training, he was a he was a baker and confectioner. So he made like fancy cakes and stuff. He and my uncle, who was a who was into like finance and stuff, were going to set up a business, being a, a bakery. Okay. That's what they were going to do. My dad was going to be the creative director. My uncle was going to be the commercial director. And that's what we're going to do. they were going to do. My dad went on a pilot trip. They found somewhere to live. They found factory, the full bit. And then two, three weeks before, we were literally going to like pack our bags and go. My uncle was diagnosed with a brain tumor and died like a week later. Oh, my God. So. Oh, no. Yeah. So then it was, well, we can't leave just yet because my aunt you know, with two little kids, you know, that's all kind of going on. So then it was like, okay, well, let's give it a year. And then it was, well, my elder sister was about to like go into high school and I was going to high school. Then my bar mitzvah's coming up and then my sister met her boyfriend and and then there's a marriage, a wedding on the way. And before they knew it, their entire life was what had been in in England, right? Because, you know, they say if you wait for the right time, you're always going to be waiting. There was always something else stopping them leaving. When my dad got his diagnosis, even though he thought he would have time, as in, well, well I'll beat this and then we'll ha- I'll have a good retirement in Israel, which of course it wasn't to be. They decided then and there, right, we waited too long, we're going to go. Within six months, they made Aliyah. They were, they were living in Israel. My dad was there. They moved it at the end of January, very beginning of February, 10 years ago, uh, 2012. And he had a great few months. But unfortunately, his cancer really took its toll. And then, I mean, I was, I was, going out to visit. I went to visit them like every, every month or so I was out. Yeah. You got some special time, right? I did. Yeah. It was really, really good. And in particular, I was with my dad in a pub in Renana where Manchester city beat United to the league in 2012. So even though I was gutted that United lost the league, I was delighted for him. They finally got C city win it. And then unfortunately, you know, a few weeks later he passed and that was it. 
Oh my God. But I feel like how amazing that he got to live his dream and end oh, yeah. up there. Yeah. It was God like, it was, bless it was, your it was mom. Totally. She's so cool for, for doing that and saying, okay, we've waited too long. We're doing it right now. Yeah. And especially yeah. even with the diagnosis, like most people that would stop them in their tracks, like we need to like deal with the doctors and where we're comfortable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, their approach was my dad never believed it was going to kill him. And it wasn't false bravado and it wasn't burying his head in the sun. He genuinely believed he was going to beat it, even right towards the end. He genuinely believed he was going to beat it and had that inner positivity all the way through. All right. Which was incredible to see. And his whole view was, yeah, I'm not feeling well, but I'll be okay in a day or two. And then we'll come back stronger and and we'll fight it. Right. Even like, I mean, I spoke to him, I didn't speak to him, unfortunately, the day he died, but the day before I called him and he was like, yeah, I'm not not feeling so good, but I I just need to like sleep it for sleep off for a couple of days and I'll be fine. You know, and I'll I'll come back stronger next week. Unfortunately, he passed away the following day. But yeah, he just had this this real inner this inner strength that that really powered them through. So his approach was: listen, I'll get treatment in England, or I get treatment in Israel. I could live in England. I could live in Israel. I could die in England. I could die in Israel. Everything's equal. Where would I rather be? I'd rather be in Israel. So that's why they moved. Wow. What are those pictures behind you? I'm glad you asked me that. Okay. So so my parents made Aliyah. They went to live in Israel in uh, making Aliyah as the term for, as you know, the term for, it means going up, but it literally, it, but it means going to permanently um, emigrate to Israel. My parents went in, it was at the very end of January, early February of 2012, okay? Back in 1991, 20 years earlier, I finished high school. When my sister, who's two years older than me, when she finished high school, she finished high school in 1990 because I skipped a year. I take every opportunity to remind her of that, even though she's the clever one of the family. So in 1990, my mum, as a treat for my sister finishing high school, my mum said, you know, just you and me, girls trip, where are we going? And my sister, being the brainy one of the family, said, I really want to go to Stratford-upon-Avon to see where Shakespeare lived, where Hathaway's cottage was, to really kind of like get the whole Shakespeare experience. Great. They went away for a few days. They did a tour. They did the whole thing. They had a really good mum-daughter bonding experience. Lovely. They came back. So a few months later, it's coming up to me graduating high school. And my dad says, right, you and me, boys trip. Where are we going? And I went, I want to go to Scotland to go around some distilleries. Me and my dad going and getting some scotch, right? And my dad's like, I'm not sure if I can take a 17-year-old around some distilleries, but what the heck? And we did. So we went up to Edinburgh, went to Perth, you know, which is a, a town in Scotland, after which the obviously the town of Australia is the city in Australia is named. And yeah, that's what we did. Fast forward 21 years to 2012. And I said to my dad, you know what? Before you go, why don't you and I redo that trip? Let's do it again. Okay. Only this time I'll take you. And my dad agreed. And my mom said, and my mom was fine with it. It was all good. Obviously he has had his medication. Everything was fine. We all did it all by the book. So I got a map from Amazon. Of, of all the distilleries that some of them are still are still going a lot of them are long since kind of closed some are open for tourists some not some are the right time of the year some not and then we went through my wife and i went through and we picked out a whole bunch of distilleries to go visit so we did 14 distilleries in three days and we went and we went to many you may not have heard of but we went to glenfiddich that you've probably heard of went to balvini that i'm sure you've heard of we went to Dalwinnie, which you may have heard of. We went to Edradour, which is famous for being the smallest distillery in Scotland. We went to Cardu. And it, what was really cool, by the way, is that when you drive around these places, Cardu is a village where the Cardu distillery is in a village called Cardu. Abalor, the whiskey, is a, the distillery is the distillery of Abalor, which is a village. So you kind of go around, you see all these like road signs, right? Pointing to like really famous whiskies, but it's because that's the village that they're in. Anyway, so we're driving around and we had the, mo- the most amazing, amazing, amazing three days. And these pictures behind me, that one is my dad and I outside Macallan. And in fact, if you look on a bottle of Macallan, you'll see this. Like, I don't know how into whiskey you are, but if you get a bottle of Macallan, there's a picture of a house on the bottom. It's part of their corporate identity. It's a picture of a house. We were in that house. We were there. Okay. This one here, I believe, that's Ochentoshan, which is the, uh, it's a lowland distillery just outside of, uh, of Edinburgh. And then that one over there is uh, Abalor. You think these places are going to be like these enormous like factories? 
that one, we drove past it. We didn't even see it. It's just a house. We have That's so special. Yeah, no, I'm really curious was. too, like, do you want to carry these trips on with your kids? And like, where do you think your kids would want to take daddy? Oh, you know what? We now, and it never really occurred to me that this is, this might be why we do it, but we do, is that, so in 2018, my younger son, who then was eight, his school was running a, an incentive program for reading. So, and the idea was, if you read however many pages of however many books over a period of time, you'd get one free ticket to Six Flags in Magic Mountain, okay? So, and I said to him, look, if you do it, I'll take you, right? So he did, and I took him. But instead of just taking him, because that's not quite enough, right? We flew out the night before. We stayed over in a hotel. We went the full, we went that day, and then we came back. And it became like a two-day trip, just he and I. And it was the most amazing bonding experience. We did it the following year in 2019. Last couple of years, we've not been able to because of, you know, because of COVID. But I've, I've said to him that he's, he's now in a different school, and they don't run that incentive program. But I said, I'm going to speak to his teachers, figure out what a good stretch target for him is in whatever area. And then if he achieves it, then we'll do the same. And as well as that, every birthday for my kids, one of the gifts that they get is a full day with me. So we go to, and it's, it's easy in, in, in Vegas, but I suppose in any city you do the same thing because there are always tourist attractions that you only ever go to when people come from out of town or whatever like People say to me, oh, you live in Vegas, you must go to the Strip all the time. Of course I don't. Like, how many people that live in New York go to Broadway? You never do, right? Or Times Square. Yeah. Or Times Square, exactly, right? You know, why, why would you go there, right? However, what we do is the when it's, you know, like a week or two after my kids' birthdays, I'll take them out for a whole Sunday and we'll go to the Strip and they get to pick which tourist attractions they want to go to, whatever. And yeah, that's what we do. So I'm a big believer that spending quality time, you know, with my kids is, is super important because... I got the opportunity to do it with my dad. So it's, it's really, really important. Like, for example, two years ago, uh, in about two weeks' time, three weeks' time, two years ago, was February the 29th. And we only get one February the 29th every four years. So we all, like, panic. Well, you know, for this extra day, and it's a unique opportunity or whatever, right? But the thing is, every day is a unique opportunity. And the thing is that when people think they'll just push something off for tomorrow, eventually they run out of tomorrows. My kids are growing up. All our kids are growing up. And you'll never get the opportunity to, eventually you'll run out of opportunities to read them bedtime stories or to have cuddles under the covers or to whatever the things, the daft things you do as a dad with your kids, eventually they'll be too old and eventually you'll, you'll run out of them. If you think that you can just do it again instead tomorrow, you'll run out of tomorrow's. Okay. okay. I'm really glad that you brought that up because you do a lot. You have a top 1% podcast. You're an entrepreneur. You're creating modules. You've had a successful business. How do you juggle that? And what is your biggest struggle as a parent? How do I, okay. Those are two very different questions. So how do I juggle all that? The first thing is you've got to be present in whatever you're doing. The biggest difference I think between when I'm at my most successful and when I'm at my least successful is very simple. When I'm at my most successful, I'm concentrating on the thing I'm doing. When I'm at my least successful, I'm concentrating on something that I'm not doing. So for example, right now, you and I are talking. I'm 100% present in this conversation. I'm not checking my emails. I'm not checking my WhatsApp. Before we started talking, I turned off everything else, all the other notifications on my computer, so I could be present with you. I do this with, and I try very hard to do this with everything else that I do, okay? Including parenting, including being a husband. And it's not easy, particularly when I've got the multiple businesses that I'm involved in. I'm also involved with my synagogue. I'm involved with, there are multiple things going on in, 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 my, in my world, right? I like to be busy. I, I do have, I wouldn't necessarily call it OCD, but I do like to be involved in lots of different things. I get very, I get very anxious when I'm not busy. It's like, I really want to be doing something, right? And, and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, you are on this world for a finite amount of time. And I want to, I want to make the most of it, right? I find that the only way that I can be the best version of myself in whatever scenario I find myself in is to give that moment 100% of me and not to be distracted. I joke a lot that I am jealous of people that can multitask, as I say, because I can barely monotask. But I do have some pride in that because I do think that, look, 
if some people can do it, that's great and all power to them. Me, I super focus to the point of not even being aware when I'm engaging in one thing. So for example, if I'm work, doing some work for a client and I'm writing a report or I'm doing some research, whatever it is, seriously, things can happen left and right of me and I wouldn't be aware of it because I, I have learned the discipline of being hyper-focused on something. And I try very hard to do the same when I'm with my kids, when I, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, this is something I've had to learn. There was, some, there was about four or five years ago, maybe longer, that my kids had a little bit of an intervention with me because they were like, when we're spending time with you, you're on your phone. And I was like, you know what? You're quite right. And so it wasn't easy. But when I'm having dinner with my kids, none of our phones are at the table. It took me some time to realize that the world won't stop turning just because somebody can't get hold of Simon later for five minutes. People can wait. Okay. That's a great answer. I definitely think that we all need to be more present and put our phone out of the room. I want to take this last little bit. I know we're coming up on the hour and I want you to talk just a little bit about your podcast. Oh, wow. Thank you. Okay. So I am the host of The Conference Room, which is a podcast dedicated to providing uh, expert business advice to people who are looking to start or have started a small business. We have a wide variety of guests, whether they are people who have started and run successful businesses themselves or are experts in a particular silo of what it takes to run a successful business. So we've had people from all areas of business life, we've had people in marketing, sales, finance, HR, crumbs, all sorts of different things. We've had experts ranging from people coming in and talking about we had the CEO of a, of, a, of a company that recently launched. He talked about how he got the company off the ground and how he got the financing that he needed. We had the uh, former managing director of the UK's biggest independent chain of furniture manufacturers who talked about how she crashed the business and the mistakes that she made that we all ought not to. And we also had an incredible guest who was a former producer of The Jerry Springer Show that came in to talk about her own amazing podcast called Better Call Daddy and how people can be incredible podcast guests and hosts. I really think you should listen to that one, Mina. And there's the promo. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything that you would like to ask my daddy? Yeah, I'm not sure whether anyone's asked him this before, but what question would he wish he could ask his dad? That's a wonderful question. And a lot of times he does talk about his dad in the episodes because the stories that people have told us makes him have emotional memories, which I think is something that's really beautiful about connecting with so many people is that when you hear other people's stories, it jogs your memory of special times that you had with your own dad. Yeah, I agree. If I can just leave a one tiny thing. Yes. If it wasn't immediately obvious, I'm a religious Orthodox Jew. Of all the festivals that we have, and let's be honest, we have many of them, my personal favorite is Passover, because for me, Passover is all about that chain of stories, the connection of generations, and the fact that if you study the history, okay, the Passover we're going to have in, what, nine weeks' time is exactly the same as we had last year. We do the same rituals, we say the same prayers, sing the same songs, hear the same stories, eat the same foods, follow the same customs and rituals. In 2022, as we did in 2021, as 2020, as 1920s, 1820, as 1420, as 1220, as 220, all the way back to when Moses took the Israelites out of Egypt. And it's all because of that chain connecting parent to child. And so for me, the amazing thing about Passover that links beautifully into the message of your podcast is it's ultimately all about that connection between parent and child. And fundamentally, the most iconic moment is when each child gets to ask their daddy those four questions. You only get to ask one, on Passover we ask four. And it's that connection, that symbolism of the connection between parent and child that makes me so connected to Passover as a festival, so connected to my dad as a towering figure in my own life, and so connected to to you, to this podcast, and so privileged having been here. Thank you very much for having me. What a beautiful ending. Thank you. I feel like maybe you should add rabbi to your title. (laughs) Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Simon, you asked me, what would I like to ask my father at this point in time? And the funny part is, is that I worked with my dad 
for close to 45 years. And we had some doozy back and forth, even after work was over, between 9 and 10 o'clock almost every night. And the funny part of this story is, is that I'm so close to my dad's philosophy and my mom's philosophy also, that I can actually hear and feel what they would do in a certain circumstance. Funny part is, is that I had really two terrific mentors and parents that were able to mentor me in business and really in life itself. And I guess as certain variables would come up, I would love to double check with my dad what he would think about this or think about that. But the fact is, is he's taught me very, very well. And I try very hard to reanalyze things as if he was looking at it. And even on some points that I might not even agree on, I even have this philosophy on things that we don't agree on and would really review those same speeches in my mind. So he still lives on. And even on a couple of the customers that don't realize that he's gone to the next world, I actually answer those customers. When some of these guys go over my head, they still ask my dad this or that. And can you do this that your son won't go along with it? And I actually respond as my dad and what he would say. So I've been able to get away with servicing certain customers as my dad. So I think that's really the lesson in in all of this is that we want to be able to really understand and carry out as if they were still here. Grandpa still has clout. He still has clout. And the truth of the matter is, is that he was such a strong communicator and sent such strong messages where just about everybody that I talk to remembers a certain situation where they can also uh, tell the story about what my dad would say under those circumstances. And that isn't that really the true mark of someone really being successful, where he's had an impact in the way we think in our everyday lives. So you said the story of Simon was right up your alley, huh? It sure is. And it's really right up Better Call Daddy show, because this is another example of someone who's being mentored by their father and where he takes his business and sales and communication skills that he observes at the very next desk over and is able to apply it, even at a young age, start his own business, be able to sell that business. And it isn't quite ironic that he then stumbles across something that he becomes very passionate about, which is really helping other people find their match in business. What's interesting is that he's ended up doing cybersecurity. And isn't it just wonderful that he also brings up, just like I used to love comic books, where he feels like he's a superhero where he's actually trying to stop people that are trying to destroy people, and he wants to catch them and protect people from being attacked. He also brought up in his interview with you that there was tragedy in his life, and to be able to overcome that and to remain focused and positive and looking forward towards the future, no matter what obstacle has to be overcome, even though you can be deeply scarred and reminded of tragedy, that the world is still a beautiful place and we can make it better. So he's also looking to create a positive future. And of course, bringing up his favorite Jewish holiday being Passover is one of the main linkages of the Jewish people, where it reminds us of the tragedy and the oppression that we had to overcome and be delivered as God's people to have humility and to be a shining light on the world and to even have even sympathy for our enemies that are being destroyed or killed, and to try also to be the good guys, and for heroes to overcome evil doers or righteousness to win out at the end, and that we should show that by not only being an example of it, but by practicing what we preach and mentoring our children and showing from generation to generation to generation to generation that same story of humility and what we had to overcome to be victorious and to have a better humanity. And it's not just Moses that took the Jewish people to Israel, but one of our relatives, one of your relatives, Rena Joy, but someone that was also having to overcome Yosef, overcoming the jealousy of his brothers thrown into a pit, and you are a direct descendant of Joshua Ben-Nun, who is also being mentored by Moses. So the first real pupil of a human that is so close to God of Moses is Joshua. And isn't that really what our show stands about also? 
is that we want to be able to mentor our children to be able to take over. And if you don't get distracted and you really focus in on what you're trying to accomplish, you can achieve more. And he mentions that. So Simon is not a simple Simon. He's a very wise person with great experiences and also a sponge of knowledge that he's picked up and he's willing to share it with the world and share it with our show. And I loved it. Also, speaking of Israel, what did you think about his father getting to live out his dream and finish his life in Israel? And I think that that's also has hit a very strong point with him is that this legacy of the Jewish people to be able to still be delivered to Israel, no matter what your condition is, that you really find your final peace by being re-delivered to the promised land is very powerful. And even Marvin and Rose, your grandma and grandpa, really decided to keep till the very end until, you know, Marvin was where we really had to make a decision and things were changed, you know, around 2014 when it looks like that they were going to Florida, that they would, of course, my sister participated in that being part of the family plot in New Jersey. But the fact is, is that they really contemplating also someday maybe being delivered and going to Israel and being buried in Israel. And there's a lot of people that might not live in Israel, but still would like to be delivered and know that they still made it there, even if it's not while they're alive. Quite an interesting concept. I love that he got to take that special trip with his dad. And then now he's doing that with his children as well. But that's the connection. That's the generational connection is that he's not living for just himself. He's living to preserve that linkage through the generations, because he also mentioned that time is very short and limited. We have to seek a method of continuum or a continuum past ourselves. And the only way to do that is to hand over our wisdom and our responsibilities and accountability to our children and our children's children and our children's children's children. Probably one of the most important holidays of really having that connection and understanding what the Jewish people have to go through to remain Jewish is the celebration of Passover. I think a very powerful holiday and a very powerful holiday when it comes to really remember that we are here to preserve the generations in order to go forward and to be able to meet some of God's challenges that he's given us. He reminds us of our history and how we have to look forward to understanding that particular moment in time. Very strong message. All right. I love it. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 